Good morning. Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to Paul's ever-popular letter to Philemon. And you will find that right before Hebrews and right after Titus. I'm telling you things you already know, right? And Titus is right after First and Second Timothy. And if you're using a pew Bible, that's great. You'll find Philemon on page 1,000. Actually, there is no page 1,000. For some reason, they don't put the page number on the first page of the book. But there is a page 999. So if you can find that. But don't turn your Bible upside down on that page because then we'll have to preach a different sermon entirely. And we don't have time for that. But before we get to Philemon, I, I wanted to start today by looking at a passage from 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you're a Christian, and if you've ever wondered why God puts you here, here's the answer. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's look at this. And I know it's early, but this is astounding. So please get this. If anyone is in Christ, and that phrase in Christ simply means you're a Christian. You'll see that all over the place in Paul's letters, Peter uses the phrase as well. If, you're, if you've been born again, you are in Christ. So whenever, again, whenever you see that in the Bible, in Christ means you're a Christian. And so Paul says that if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. If you've been born again, you are a new creation. And you look at yourself and you say, don't look very brand new to me. Doesn't feel very brand new. If you've been born again, though, in God's eyes, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are something different than you were before you were saved. Verse 18 says, all this is from God, who through Christ, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God reconciled us, sinful man, to himself because of the cross. That is astounding. If we knew how sinful sinful really is, if we knew how bad our sin really is in God's eyes, and that he reconciled us through the death of his own son, that is astounding. That is amazing that God would do that. I was looking at this last hymn, Merciful and Mighty is Our God. If you think about that, merciful and mighty, to me and you, those are worlds apart, but that's our God. He is so merciful, he sent his son to the cross for sinful man. What is the eternal problem for mankind? What is the eternal, eternal problem that mankind faces? For every person sitting in this room, for every person ever born, there is a problem. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope. 
and without God in the world. But you say, wait a minute, if you know your Bible, you say, wait a minute, that was for the Gentiles. What about the Jews? No, sorry, Romans chapter three slams the door on everybody, everybody. It says this, what then? Are, are we Jews any better off? No, uh-uh, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. As it is written, get this, none is righteous. No, not one, not one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 23 sums it up. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you can't get there on your own. You were so sinful, you can't save yourself. Reconciled to God, though. The eternal problem for mankind was solved at the cross. We were singing about the cross. I was like, how am I going to get up there and talk? I mean, I'm all choked up because God did this at the cross. The cross is everything. But it leads to this. The theme of the Bible is God reconciling mankind to himself. God pursuing sinful, sinful man who wants nothing to do with him, who doesn't understand him. It's gone. It doesn't mean anything to the sinner, to the lost person. But God pursued us and reconciled us to himself. And that reconciliation again took place at the cross. We sang, come praise and glorify our God who gives his, Christ, his grace in Christ. In him, our sins are washed away, redeemed through sacrifice at the cross. So God reconciled us to himself. And then, <laughs> talk about transformation, and then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, our trespasses against them, against us. And then entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of, the rec of reconciliation and he gave us the message of reconciliation. What is the message of reconciliation? Somebody tell me. Right, the gospel. Very good, class. It's the gospel. And what is the gospel? It's good news. So you've got to ask the question, if we've got good news, there's got to be bad news, right? What's the bad news? A little refresher course. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. You cannot save yourself. Therefore, because we have been given the ministry and the message, now we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal to sinful man through us. I have thought many times, if I wasn't such a cheapskate, about printing up whatever, 250, whatever, little, those little badges, you know, that you pin when you go somewhere that says ambassador for Christ. John Tierney, ambassador for Christ. That's a frightening thing in a way. But what if, that's what we are. We are ambassadors for Christ. Again, why did God put you on this earth? If he saved you, it's to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Wear it proudly. Wear it humbly. Be amazed. And live accordingly. What an office we've been given. 
It goes on, it says, we implore you then on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Again, reconciliation is the theme of the Bible. You could argue that with me, you're more than welcome. Everyone has a right to be wrong. So, and it's the theme of the day, by the way. A huge part of reconciliation though involves, here's the theme of the day, forgiveness. Reconciliation and forgiveness go hand in hand. Verse 19 of the passage that we just looked at says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That is forgiveness. And I understand I jumped into the deep end of the pool right off the bat, and that's okay with me. If there's someone, as you sit here today, if there's someone you're not right with, God would have you go to that person and seek to be reconciled. And granted, there are, I understand, there are situations in life where things get so out of control and so bad, maybe you say, I can't do it and there's no way. If you need counseling, if you need to dig deeper into the Word of God and let it heal you, we offer biblical counseling here. I can't tell you enough. Please take advantage of that. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are children of the Most High. We can't live holding something against somebody. We just can't do that. But in the overwhelming majority of cases, that's, that's not what goes on. That's not necessary. You simply need to humble yourself and reconcile with this other person. Especially if you're a Christian, God doesn't count your trespasses against you. Neither should you be unforgiving to someone else. If that's hanging in your head, hanging in your heart, good. I'll talk a little bit more about it in a few minutes, but I'll leave it at that. Kind of let it hang there. Might be a good thing for the moment. So that is the longest preamble in the history of Sermon and Dumb. So we're going to get to our text now, and, and I'm going to pray. And before we get going, I want to ask you to do something. As I'm praying to God, Please pray for God's glory that his word would clear minds, convict hearts, and bring about reconciliation to his glory. So let's pray. Father, your word, especially on a day like today, is a two-edged sword. And through your Holy Spirit, it does divide all the way down to everything. I don't know, but you do, who today is carrying bitterness in their heart, who is unwilling to forgive. My prayer, God, for your glory, for the body of Christ, is that your word, your Holy Spirit, would get down to that place and empower this person to set aside their fleshly motives and forgive again for the body of Christ, for your glory. Father, I, I beg you for that, and I do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look at Philemon, Paul's letter to this man, Philemon. And, he's, and I'm going to leave a lot on the table today, given the circumstances, and that's okay. Um, Philemon is writing a personal letter. Excuse me, Paul is writing a personal letter to a man named Philemon. 
And you can impress your other Christian friends when they say Philemon. It's Philemon. So there's your little tidbit for the day. He's writing this letter to his good friend and brother. And as you read it, he's, he's invited quite a few people to sort of stand there and look over Philemon's shoulder, so to speak. And let's begin. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. And he says, right there with me is Timothy, our brother. And then things get interesting right off the bat. He says, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, probably Philemon's wife, to Archippus, our fellow shoulder, maybe their son, maybe an elder in the church, we don't really know, and to the church, the entire church that meets in your house. The letter's to Philemon, but it's to be read to the entire church. And by the way, that church is the church in Colossae. When you read Paul's letter to the Colossians, that's taking place in Philemon's house. That's where they were meeting. So they're all sitting there, standing there, whatever, as this letter is being read. Things get, okay, he says, you're not going to sit down and read us in your recliner because everyone's going to hear this letter. So Paul begins, grace to you, Philemon, and everybody else, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that's in us for the sake of Christ. And I'll come back and explain all that in just a minute. Verse 7, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul was always concerned about the churches. In um, 2 Corinthians, he wrote about all the burdens and the harsh, hardships that he had been through an, as an apostle. And then he said, not only that, but there's the daily pressure on me of my concern for all the churches. So when he hears that Philemon has been a blessing to the church, you know, that's right in his heart. He's, he's, he's wonderful news to him. But now, very quickly, he's going to get down to business, why he's writing this letter. In verse 8, he says, accordingly, or you could say, because of that, Philemon, because, because I know your character, because I know that, you know, you're the real deal. I know the genuineness of your faith. He says, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you, to order you to do what's required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. And we need to stop here. Because not even Shakespeare could have come up with something this dramatic. We're going to find out a lot about Onesimus in the next few minutes. But if you've never read this letter, Onesimus was a runaway slave. And he belonged to Philemon. And, and we don't know why he ran away. We just know that he did. And when he did, he did what most people do when they try to hide from the world. He went to the big city. He went to Rome where he could get lost. And God doesn't tell us how or any of the details. But in Rome, Onesimus, the runaway slave, met Paul the apostle, the prisoner. And Paul calls him my child because God saved Onesimus through Paul's ministry. But as far as the scene back in the church, now go back, you know, to the reading of the letter. I've, I've always wondered, did everybody in the church, like at that moment, 
turn and look at Philemon. Like if, if we brought Philemon here today and he's standing over there and I'm, I'm reading the letter and, and, you find, and you know Philemon and you find out that, hey, Onesimus is back. <laughs> would you look at him? Oh man, what's he gonna do? You know what I mean? I mean, I would, I don't know. Or maybe because this is such a cultural thing, Paul is asking the culture that they live in to make a change. And so maybe they're just shocked at Paul's words. We we don't know, but there's a lot of things that could have been going on. Slavery was a way of life in the Roman culture. It wasn't American slavery. It was vastly different, but rules were rules and it was the law. I'll get to that in a minute as well. So verse 11, formerly he says to Philemon, he was useless to you, but now indeed he is indeed useful to you and to me. Onesimus, the meaning of the word Onesimus was useful. So he says, okay, I get it. You know, he left you, so he was useless, but now he, it's a play on words. He's useful to you, but he's also useful to me. Verse 12, he says, I'm sending him back to you, and it's like sin in my very heart. And he says, to be honest, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I didn't want to do that. I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. And then he reasons with five Lehman. He says, maybe this is why he was parted from you for a little while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, he says, if you consider me a partner, receive him exactly as you would receive me. Again, put yourself in Philemon's shoes. He probably paid a whole lot of money to purchase this slave. And you can talk about slavery in another minute here or somewhere else. The fact is economically, hey, I made a huge investment and it's gone. And I've been offended and the law affords me all kinds of possibilities. So now he's back and you're saying, I just let him walk in the door. Have you ever been hurt? Have you ever been wounded? Have you ever been ripped off by somebody? And you're asked, hey, forgive and forget, just like that. That's in essence what he's saying. He goes on to say, if he's wronged you at all, or if he owes you anything, you charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And then he says, oh, and by the way, to say nothing of you owing me your own self. Not only was Onesimus saved under Paul's ministry, so was Philemon. Verse 20 says, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Remember earlier when Paul said that Philemon has refreshed the hearts of the saints? Now he says, what about me? Verse 21, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say because of who Philemon is. He says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. And then he closes with a very interesting list of names. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Paul refers to Philemon as, you know, his partner, his fellow worker. He always saw this as, as we all work together. 
And so he calls them his fellow workers. And he concludes by saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So I'd like to go back to verse four, verses four through six and look at those more closely. Uh, I, I don't think they read real well um, in the ESV or in really any other translation. Man, they matter so much. They matter so much to you and me. So verse four says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your faith or your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. If that looks out of order, it's something called a chiastic construction. Um, it was pretty common in the way they wrote things back then, but it should read, it should, to us, what the way they did things is like your love you can see on the screen, your love goes with for all the saints and your faith goes with um, toward the Lord Jesus. So that's just kind of an aside, but if it was confusing, I wanted to at least explain why it looked the way it did. So there's your Greek lesson for the day. Now, Paul tells Philemon that he prays for him. He tells him um, how he prays for him. He thanks God for him. And he tells him why he thanks God for him. He thanks him for his love of the saints and his faith to the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to spend some time specifically on verse 6. And I really want you to get this because this is a huge lesson for us today. Verse 6 says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Okay, the word sharing is the Greek word koinonia. And I think a lot of people have at least heard that word. And this is kind of a paraphrase. I got this off of a website that I really like. And there's different definitions for koinonia, but this really sums it up. When you see sharing here in this verse, it's referring to this. Scripture commands us to be devoted to one another. Scripture commands us in different places to honor one another, to live in harmony with one another. That's koinonia, to accept one another, to serve one another in love, not begrudgingly, to be kind and compassionate to one another, to admonish one another, to encourage one another, and to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to offer hospitality and to love one another. That's what true biblical koinonia should look like. That's a great synopsis of koinonia. So when he says the sharing of your faith, obviously it's a, lot, it's a lot bigger than sharing, hey, this is how I got saved. He's talking about something much broader because he's getting ready to ask Philemon to forgive Onesimus. The next word I want you to see is the word effective. And the word effective in the verse is energes. And the definition of that is active, operative, effectual, powerful, energized. And that will factor into this as well. He says I, 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 um, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. He means I'm, I'm praying that it takes off, that a fire gets lit because of this. The last word I want you to see is when he says full knowledge. That is the word epignosis. And again, Warren Wearsby summed this one up so well. This is what God wants. If, if you've been around here long enough, you've heard me pound on something and say, God wants you to know him. And he wants you to know him backwards and forwards, inside and out. He's God. And he's like, I want you to know me. I want to be known. So, epignosis goes there. Warren Wearsby wrote this. The believer must grow in his knowledge of God. To know God personally is salvation. To know him increasingly is sanctification, and to know him perfectly is glorification. We'll know him perfectly when we leave this earth. Since we are made in the image of God, 
The better we know God, the better we know ourselves and know each other. It's not enough to know God only as Savior. We must get to know him as father, friend, guide, and the better we know him, the more satisfying our spiritual lives would be. And I would add, the more God is glorified in our lives. And that's what it's about. It's one thing to know who God is. It's a far, far, far different thing to know God. You can know all day long about God. You can know all day long everything about God. But if you don't know God, you're not saved. And God wants to be known. So when you sum all this up, here's my paraphrase of verse 6. Scary thing for me to paraphrase a verse of the Bible, but I'm going to go with it. This is what I think verse 6 says. He says, Philemon, I pray that the living out of your faith in this moment here may prove to be a very, very powerful moment in your walk with God. A moment when your knowledge of all that you have in Christ went from being something you knew in your head to something you've lived and experienced. He's going to ask Philemon to forgive Onesimus and he wants Philemon and he wants us to understand that, that there's no comparison between talking about it and doing it. Has anyone here, I, I'll ask for a show of hands. I bet I don't get many. Has anyone here ever taken a ride in one of those two-seater Indy cars? It's really expensive, no takers. Has anyone ever been to Yosemite National Park? Okay, we got some park people here. <laughs> Has anyone ever done this? You're insane. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Not in a million years, okay? All right. You can put that away. I don't want to see it anymore. The Greek, okay. With all that in mind, that's, again, you can talk about knowing something. I, I can know what it is to skydive, but you, I'm not jumping out of that plane. I'll never know what it is to skydive. I can know what it's like. By reading, I, I've never skied down the side of a mountain in Colorado, and I never will. There's all these things, and until you do it, you don't really know. And so verse 6 says to Philemon and says to you and to me, forgive in an extremely different circumstance, difficult circumstance. Forgive, Philemon, forgive. And when you do, Philemon, and us here, you will experience something of the, of the nature of all that we have in Jesus Christ that you will never experience otherwise. And you will know God better. But you have to forgive. You can, you can talk about it. You can read about it. You can pray about it. Until you do it, you will never experience all that we have in Christ. A lot more to be said about that. Paul was asking, though, a huge thing of Philemon. Forgive a slave who broke the law. The implications of Philemon's decision, whether or not he does this, are, 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 they run rampant. It's huge. What would the church think if he forgives him? What would the community at large think? He most likely owned other slaves. What would they think? And there's a million more questions beyond those. 
J.B. Lightfoot said this about, about slavery in the Roman culture. He said, Roman law practically imposed no limits to the power of the master over his slave. The alternative of, or, of life or death rested solely with Philemon. And slaves were constantly, constantly crucified for far lighter offenses than, the, than his. A thief and a runaway, Onesimus had no claim to forgiveness. And yet Paul asks him to forgive. And here's the key. Paul says, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to order you to do something. That's not the better way. Love is the better way. And that's the basis of my appeal, Paul says. He mentions a second time that he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus. For love. To defend the gospel for the sake of Christ. But orders aren't what God wants. In Psalm 32, we're going to look at verse 8 and 9. But in verse 9, God just implores the Israelites. I really want you to get this. He says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it won't stay near you. Verse 8 says, I, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I don't want to have to put a bit in your mouth and yank, it, yank you around like a horse. I just want to tell you, do this. This is what pleases me. And you follow. It's for God's glory and it's for our benefit. Trust what God says. And God says, forgive, folks. Trust me, he says. Please forgive and experience what, what I have for you in reality. Remember the definition of koinonia? Be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, accept one another, serve one another in love. These are all, these are all direct scripture references. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Admonish one another, sure. Encourage one another. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Offer hospitality and love one another. Lightfoot says in another place, he's, and this is massive to me. This is, he says, it should ever be our happy privilege as it is our great responsibility to manifest the same grace to others as that which has been lavished on us. Wow, that's something you would put on a wall. We are so privileged to be in the family of God and I don't think we take that seriously. We are privileged to be God's children. We are ambassadors for Christ. Our lives should reflect that. Chad, Chad read from Ephesians this morning about how God lavished all good things on us. God is so good to us. And he says, but I want you to forgive. Well, I don't know if I can do that, Lord. Proverbs 19.11 says this. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And here's the thing. And it's the, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Other translations say, it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. In, in the world of reconciliation, sometimes you got to work things out. And sometimes someone has done you wrong and they need to make amends or you make, need to make amends. I totally get that. But in the gist of life, 
It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. Sometimes you just let it go. Just let it go. Don't keep an account. God doesn't. Don't keep a record of wrongs that were done against you. I've seen husbands and wives walk around with like six shooters on both hips. And boy, when you do something, I'm going to unload on everything you've done for the past 30 years. How in the world can a marriage survive if you don't just overlook an offense? And God calls on us in Proverbs to do that. James chapter 2 verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That doesn't mean the big, big picture judgment of God. It means the person you're dealing with here. It means forgive. It means forgive. Paul asked Philemon to forgive Onesimus, and he did. Elsewhere in the book of Colossians, Onesimus is mentioned, and I, I can't guarantee it's him, but all the evidence points to that being Onesimus and that Philemon forgave him. Here's something to keep in mind if you're dealing with, especially a Christian who you need to forgive, needs to forgive you, whatever the situation might be. At one time, Paul was unsaved, Philemon was unsaved, and Onesimus was unsaved. But look what God did through grace and through forgiveness. Now they're brothers. They're brothers forever. Now they worship God together. And now we read about them and they teach us. All that matters. So let's get to the rubber meets the road part. But you say, I hear what you're saying. I just can't. Maybe not. But if you're saved, the Holy Spirit of God within you can enable you and empower you. Don't say, I can't. God can. God will do that for you. It's pleasing to him. It's pleasing to the kingdom. Remember, folks, God forgave you. If you can't forgive, and I've used this analogy before, I want you to think about something. Typically, when someone does you wrong, Part of the hurt is that now they have the upper hand, and we don't like that. And then they come to you and they say, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? Whoa, whoa, the tables have turned, haven't they? In your flesh, now you hold the upper hand. Now I got you where I want you. And your flesh says, I kind of like this. Imagine, if you will, if the person says to you, will you forgive me? And you say no. Imagine, if you will, if you would turn around and somehow you saw them taking Jesus' body down off the cross after he died for your sins. If you saw that and you knew it was because of your sin and you were a Christian, you would turn around as fast as you could and say, please forgive me for not forgiving you. Because that's the cross. That's the cross. We were forgiven at the cross. How could we not forgive one another? 
the amazing thing about God in this situation is, and, and Chad McFadden and I have had numerous discussions about this, the long-suffering nature of God. If today you know you need to forgive somebody, but you're just not going to do it, you need to repent right now, and you need to forgive right now. But I will tell you this. If you don't, keep this in, in your mind. God is long-suffering, and that means that even though he, we'll use a King James word, even though he has every right and reason to smite you right now, he won't do that because he loves you, because he's merciful and mighty. He will come to you, unbelievable to me, that God will come to you in your unrepentant state and prod, pull, hurt, whatever it takes you to start moving in this direction to repent. The God of the universe would do that for me? Why? Because he loves you, because he loves me. And he, if he has to carry you, he will. If he has to push you, he will. If he has to break your leg like a lamb and carry you, he'll do it. And he will bring you, it's amazing, he will bring you to the point where you do repent. That's our God. That's unreal. How thankful we need to be that that's our God and that's his nature. He will do that and then you will repent. Don't take advantage of it. God's not a fool. He won't be mocked. But just know that if you say right now I can't, God is still with you. But you have to repent. You have to forgive people. That's the commandment of God. In, in closing, I, I want to switch gears kind of completely. There's something about Onesimus that I, I didn't mention. I want you to think about his situation now. Not Philemon, but Onesimus. He, if you get deeper into the letter, he stole something. He took money, he did something, and he took off. He, he is in a pit at that point. He, he, there's no way out for him. If you're sitting here today and, and you're not saved, and, and God's word has somehow convicted you of your sin, and you think, that's me. I got no way out. God could never forgive me. No way. Onesimus was that guy. But God took him to Rome and saved him. He wanted to escape with the dregs of society, but God saved him. Martin Luther said, we are all Onesimuses. And maybe that's who you are today. And maybe you know an Onesimus. You were an Onesimus if you're saved. But I wanted to address anyone here today who knows the Onesimus, who's still gone, who hasn't come back. And I want to do that by reading you something from Charles Spurgeon, who was a pastor in the late 1800s in, in London. And I wanted to read exactly what he wrote, but 1875 British English is impossible for us to understand. So I did paraphrase it. I tried to be very... Um, accurate in maintaining what he said. 
But I want to read this to you. And then we'll close. And this is all his words. I want to speak to some of you Christian people about something. Do you have a son or a daughter who walked away from God? Or a brother or a sister or a best friend or a spouse? Are they strong-willed, rebellious? Or maybe they just couldn't handle the strengths of being a Christian. It's a sad thing when that happens, a very sad thing. But don't be despondent. In fact, don't even have a thought of despair about them. You don't know where they are, but God does. And you can't be there with them, but the Spirit of God can. They're far away. They've moved to L.A. or New York or to Vegas or two miles away or who knows where. Ah, but there may be a Paul the Apostle in L.A. or New York or Vegas or right around the corner who God has set apart to be the means of their salvation. And since Paul, that Paul isn't here, your son or your daughter or whoever must go there. Have they gone overseas? Are they going to live with a friend who maybe isn't the best influence in their life? Maybe they're going to join the military for all the wrong reasons. Wherever they go, by God's grace, there may be a word spoken to them which is the only word that will ever reach them. I don't have it. No one around here has it. But the man that God has placed in their path will. And so God's letting this person who you love so much, go their own way and all their anger or their pride or stubbornness or arrogance or foolishness or brokenheartedness. God's letting them go that way because that's the way he has made to bring them to salvation. Many a young man has been wild, reckless, godless, Christless and has ended up in a hospital or a prison or a gutter and oh, if his mother knew that he was in such a state, how sad her mind would be. For she would conclude that her dear son will die in some place far from home and never come home again. And I know that some of you have that situation, but it's in that very place that God intends to meet him. Spurgeon says, a sailor wrote to me something like that. He said, my mother asked me to read a chapter every day, but I never did. I ended up in a hospital in a foreign land. And when I was lying there, there was a man near to me who was dying. And he died one night, but before he did, he said to me, mate, could you come here? I want to talk to you. I have something that's very precious to me here. I've lived a foolish and reckless life. But reading this packet of sermons has brought me to the Savior, and I'm dying with a good hope through grace. Now, when I'm dead and gone, will you take these sermons and read them and may God bless them to you? And will you write a letter to the man who preached and printed these sermons and tell him that God used them for my conversion and that I hope he'll use them to do the same for you? Spurgeon says it was a packet of my sermons. 
And God did, did use them to save that young man, who I have no doubt whatsoever ended up in that hospital because there a man who had been brought to Christ would hand him the words which God had used to bring him to salvation and would do the same for his friend. You don't know, dear mother, you do not know. The worst thing that could possibly happen to someone is sometimes the best thing that could happen to them. I have sometimes thought when I have seen a young person who seemed to have everything end up charting a course that leads to their destruction. Well, that's no good. But they might as well go through their money as quickly as they can. And then when they've gotten, out, gotten down to beggary, they'll be like the young gentleman in the parable who left his father. When he had spent it all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in need. And he said, I will arise, and I will go to my father. Perhaps the disease that follows vice, perhaps the poverty that comes like an armed man after extravagance and debauchery is only love in another form. Sent to compel the sinner to come to himself and to consider his ways and to seek an ever-merciful God. If you need to forgive somebody, please forgive them. If you have an anesthesis, please trust in God. God is sovereign. He knows your situation. What a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful God we have. If you need to talk, let's talk. Otherwise, let's pray and we'll be finished. Father, this little letter just burst forth with so much as only the word, your word, can. And I thank you for it. It digs deep, especially for those who are unforgiving. Bitterness has gained a foothold. Bitterness has taken over the room. And in our flesh, we can't do it. But you live within us, and you can and you will. That is the truth of your word, and I ask God so much that you would show that to anyone within the sound of my voice who can't forgive. I pray for any Anesimus who is just lost and thinks, I have no way out. I pray that your words in your Bible would convict that person's soul that they need you, but that you are there and that they can be saved from this pit and spend eternity in heaven, the glory of heaven, the glory of you. That's my prayer for them. And my prayer for all of us is that we would take your word, your gospel, as ambassadors for you into this lost, dark, lonely, angry, bitter, confused world and that you would be glorified through that. And I ask everything in Jesus' name, amen.